I'm Olympic and world champion diver, Laura Wilkinson, and this is the Pursuit of Gold podcast. Each week, we are unlocking the physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual tools that help athletes reach their biggest goals in sports. This week's guest made her Olympic debut at the tender age of 15, becoming the youngest competitor on the U.S. Olympic team. At her second Olympic Games, she secured two individual medals, a silver and a bronze, and by her third Games, she was named captain of the U.S. Olympic swimming team. Elizabeth Beisel is an extraordinary athlete whose achievements and contributions have left an indelible mark on the world of swimming. Throughout her career, Elizabeth has won 14 U.S. national titles, a world championship title, and nine international medals. While pursuing her education at the University of Florida, she excelled both academically and athletically. Elizabeth won two NCAA titles and 14 SEC titles, and she graduated with a 3.9 GPA. So it's no surprise that she was recognized as the 2011 NCAA Division I Scholar-Athlete All-American of the Year. Since retiring swimming competitively, Elizabeth has found a new calling as a commentator and media contributor. She now shares her wealth of knowledge and experience, lending her insights to NBC and ESPN viewers, enriching their understanding and enjoyment of the sport. She also has her name etched in history as the first woman to swim Block Island, a 20-kilometer nonstop and unassisted journey aptly named Block Cancer. It's raised over $600,000 for cancer research and clinical trials. And to top it all off, Elizabeth has also written a best-selling book about her incredible journey called Silver Lining. You're in for a real treat today as Elizabeth is super down to earth, even while sharing the toughest parts of her story, along with an unexpected and satisfying finale to her competitive days. And she also forgives me for saying her last name completely wrong for like an entire decade. So thank you, Elizabeth, for being such a true class act and offering a goofball like me such grace. Real quick, I want to tell you about a workshop that I'm hosting at the end of this month that I'm really excited about. On August 30th, I'm hosting a live workshop called Take Action to teach you not only how to set high-quality goals, but more importantly, how to create an entire plan of action to make those goals achievable. Many of you are in the post or preseason of your sport, and this is the perfect time to start creating a plan of action to crush your goals this season. This Take Action Workshop will be hosted on Zoom so you can attend from anywhere and there'll be a replay sent out to those who grab a seat. We're also gonna have a live Q&A at the end and that's such a great opportunity to just dig into what you specifically wanna need. And that's not all. I've also created a 32-page digital workbook because I want you to be able to actually implement the things that I'm teaching you. So stop hoping that your dreams will come true and let me show you how to create a plan to make even your biggest goals achievable. Don't miss out on this limited time opportunity. Go snag your seat right now at laurawilkinson.com slash workshop. That's laurawilkinson.com slash workshop. Make sure you smash that subscribe button and give Pursuit of Gold a five-star review. And please tell your friends about this podcast so we can continue to improve and grow to that next level because we wanna bring you more resources, tools, and inspiration. All right, I believe that there's gold in your future, so let's dive on into this episode. Elizabeth Beasel, welcome to the Pursuit of Gold podcast. I am so excited you're here. 
I'm so happy to be here, Laura. Thank you so much for having me and, you know, allowing me to come on, steal an hour of your time and talk about some good stuff. Oh, see, that's what I was going to say. So maybe you should host the podcast. (laughs) See, this is the issue that we're both in journalism. So I was like, I'm now used to asking people the questions, but I'm like, no, no, no. Today I'm the guest. Yes, I'm turning the tables on you. That is my goal. Let Laura do her job. (laughs) But you're so cute, like, because you were so young when we were on the same Olympic team and we didn't really know each other then either. But you were just telling me before we hit record that you think you had a poster or something because we were speedo athletes. And I was like, what? This is so crazy. How do you even know who I am? (laughs) For those that are listening, you obviously all are loyal listeners to Laura's podcast. I was a loyal fan before all of you because I have this core memory of Laura being on a poster in my room as a child with like the like just so weird. (laughs) I know, right? Like Summer Sanders, Natalie Coughlin, Amanda Beard, like the OG Speedo athletes. And so when I got an email in my inbox from the Laura Wilkinson to be a guest on her podcast, I was like, oh my God. You're just cracking me up. You're cracking me. I still can't believe this is so weird. I'm sitting there going, this girl doesn't know who I am. Like, I'm so excited. She's coming on the podcast. And you're like, I had a poster of you in my room. (laughs) What 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 is happening Little did you know, Laura? I've been a fan since day one. (laughs) Well, this is awesome. So, okay. Well, I now want to gush all over you. And I want to go all the way back to the beginning because you made your first Olympic team, which was my last Olympic team in 2008. And you were just 15 years old. So, I mean, did you come out of the womb swimming or like, how did you get into your sport? Crazy. I know. No, I was not born into a family of a lot of swimming lineage. I was a water baby. I will say that. And Laura, I don't know if you were the same, but I was one of those babies at the mommy and me class when I was six months old. And I was the only one that wasn't screaming bloody murder. Like (laughs) I just loved the water. And so I did other sports growing up, but I think you were allowed to join the local swim team when you were five. So I joined that swim team. I did ballet and soccer and basketball, played violin and piano. But I think swimming just for my love of the water, I think I knew that was always what I was going to pursue. And I try to tell people, listen, just because my journey ended or started with me making the Olympic team at 15, that does not mean that's what you need to do. I just really was on an accelerated trajectory into, I guess, success or whatever you define success as. But yeah, I mean, being on an Olympic team as a 15-year-old was complete shock, especially because I was on the same team as Dara Torres in 2008. Yeah. Was she 41 or 42 at the time? 41. And she literally was like, Weisel, you could be my child and it wouldn't even be weird. That would (laughs) totally work out numbers-wise. And so I was lucky to learn from a lot of really big names in the sport of swimming and had a lot of amazing mentors that kind of full circle ended up teaching me what I needed to know about being a leader and then allowed me to be a leader later on in my career, which I'm sure we'll get to at some point in the podcast. But yeah, 15 years old, walking through the village. It doesn't matter how old you are walking through the village, to be honest. It's just like utter shock. Like, I'm Laura, I'm sure you have moments where you were in the dining hall and you were like, oh, that's Usain Bull. That's why the dining hall is the best place to be because like you just sit there and people watch and you just see all the idols that you've ever seen like on TV walking by and it's like, where am I? What's happening right now? Yeah. Did you ever have imposter syndrome? Like, did you ever feel oh like, my gosh. Ooh, what am I doing here? Always. 
But, you know, something I saw was really funny is I saw Michael Phelps chasing after Kobe Bryant at one point, And I thought that was so funny. I was like, OK, this is like where are like I feel like I'm in a TV show right now. I know. It's just weird, like, <laughs> it really could be. And I, I need to bring up two points real quick. First, I love that you said like your trajectory, just because you got on the Olympic team at 15 does not mean that's what everybody needs to be doing. I didn't start my sport until I was 15. So definitely true. We went on very different paths to get there. Doesn't mean we couldn't get to the same end point, you know. And also, have I been saying your last name wrong this whole time? Is it Beisel or Beisel? Oh, God. Well, it's spelled Beisel, but you say it Beisel. Girlfriend, I am so sorry. I'm an idiot. So Beisel. Laura, don't you worry. It's been my whole life. It's not just you. Yes, but I I don't need to add to those problems. I have really hard last names, too, and all my kids have weird names, so I should be the one pronouncing it correctly, so I apologize for that. Oh, you're fine. Oh, good Lord. Okay, Forgiven. yeah, it's, it's, it's a Monday. <laughs> We're recording on a Monday, and I'm just starting my coffee, so... <laughs> Here we are. It's okay. We're doing good things, though. We're trying. <laughs> Definitely. Okay, so did you have Olympic aspirations? You made the team at 15. Did you dream of this since starting that swim team at five years old, or when did that kind of become a reality? like a real dream for you or a real goal for you? I think similar to most, I would say most people in at least the swimming world and maybe same for diving for you, Laura, but I remember distinctly watching the 2000 Sydney Olympics on TV. I was seven years old and it was the first time I'd ever seen my sport swimming on the television. And it was the first time that I also grasped the enormity and weight of the Olympic Games and how cool it was, you know, like even as a seven year old, it was like, wow, like you get to represent your country and like go to this place and swim on TV. I was like, yeah, I want to do that. And so I remember going into practice like I mean, we were on summer break, obviously, because it was a summer game or maybe not, because I think Sydney was actually in the fall. It was in September. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe we had like just gone back to swim practice. I remember, I think it was Misty Hyman's Turner Butterfly, and she, a complete upset, and won gold, and that was, like, so inspiring for me to watch, and I remember going into practice that next day and looking at my coach, Josh, and being like, Josh, I think I'm going to go to the Olympics one day, and I'm sure he heard that from every other child on the team, (laughs) and I'm sure he gave the same response to every other child, and he was like, sure, yeah, like, let's work hard, and, um, But it was cool because I don't know why, but I just truly believed that I could. You know, there's always that sliver of doubt in your mind because it's such a big and lofty goal and it's scary. And there is that sliver of doubt until you actually do it. But I just always had this strong desire and fire inside of me to make it big in swimming. I mean, I don't know if it was because I loved the sport so much or I was just naturally good at it or a combination of all those things. And I love to work hard, but yeah, I think at seven years old, that was kind of when the dream started and I dedicated every practice to making that dream come true. Yeah. There's something kind of magical about that age, somewhere between seven and 10. I think that we see things like that and it just becomes like, whoa, wait a minute. I want to do that. I remember watching Mary Lou Retton. I'm going to really date myself here because I was back in 1984. That's when I watched her and I wanted to be in the Olympics for gymnastics. You know, that was the beginning of my want to go to the Olympics. There's something very special about that age and seeing those things. And it lights up something in you that I think is pretty special. When did you kind of realize that, okay, well, this is the thing I want to do. I'm little and yes, this is this big dream. But at what point did it start to feel like I can actually do this? Or was it not until you like made the team? No, I think it started pretty early for me. I made my first national team at 13. 
which meant I was the top two turner backstroker in the country at 13. Like senior nationals? Yeah, like full on, like real national team. Wow. The fastest turner backstroker was a 23 year old who swam at Auburn. Her name was Margaret Holzer. And then the second fastest American was 13 year old me who had just graduated middle school <laughs> and didn't even have a driver's license. Not even close. Still had braces. So I like, just picture that. Like I accelerated at such a high rate at a young age. And it's not even like I developed faster than my peers. I think we have this term in swimming. You just have a feel for the water. And I really do think I had not only just a feel for the water, but I also worked hard. And you talk about that prime seven to 10 year old range where nothing is impossible. And I just like naively believed that I could do whatever it was. Oh yeah. Of course I'm going to go to the Olympics. Like (laughs) I wish I could channel that into my life now as a 30 year old. It's a beautiful thing, isn't it? It is so beautiful. And I think, you know, that was part of the reason why I was able to have so much success at a young age. But, um, when I made that national team at 13, it was kind of like, oh wow, I'm the second best athlete in the country in this event. And they take two athletes to the Olympics in each event. So I'm kind of on the right roadmap towards making the Olympic Games two years after that. So that was 2006 when I was 13 and 2008 was when I was 15. So there kind of was some strong indicators that I was going to make the Olympic team. But um, again, like you said, it was hard for me to believe it could truly happen until it did. I mean, I don't know what it was for you to make your first Olympic team, but I remember touching that wall and seeing that I made the team. And it was like the purest form of joy I've probably ever experienced to this day. Just genuine joy, because that's when the dream came true. Were you terrified going into that trials? Were you confident or like, how did you feel as a young kid, but with really high hopes of making that? What were those feelings like walking into that first trials? Oh my gosh. All right. I have a quick story, but I'll try and keep it as abbreviated as possible. So my best event was the Turner backstroke and that was on day six of trials. And for those of you that don't know swimming, Olympic trials are eight days long. It is a long meet. So I had my best event on day six and on day one, I had the 400 IM and that was kind of just a warm up event for me. You know, I wasn't going to make the team. I think I was going in seated 15th and they take top two. It was like a great way to shake off the nerves and get used to the pool and see how I felt. And in prelims of this 400 IM on day one, I end up dropping like eight seconds. Holy cow. Yeah. Breaking the Olympic trials record and going the fastest (laughs) time in the world. Oh my gosh. Laura, and I'm not kidding when I say it was out of nowhere. This came out of nowhere. Magic taper. (laughs) Literally, I hit the taper so good. So this was like very... Out of the blue, I was like not even thinking I was going to make it to finals. So now all of a sudden, all the nerves, the pressure, the anxiety has hit me like a ton of bricks because I was maybe going to be ready to do this on day six, but not like that day on day one. So normally during prelims finals, I like to take a nap or between prelims finals. I couldn't nap. I couldn't eat. I was so nervous, like thinking about, and we all do this as athletes, like what if I fail? I'm so nervous. Like this was all for nothing. I'm going to mess it up. Blah, blah, blah. I remember getting to the pool that afternoon for finals and I did my first big warm up. and I get out of the pool, dry off, put on my parka and I sit down next to one of my best friends and my teammate and her name's Laura. Ironically, she must have been awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Laura, she was amazing. She's still one of my best friends to this day, uh, Nice, which is like a story for another day. But 
she was so stoked for me as everybody was. She was like, oh my God, your dream is going to come true tonight. You're going to make the Olympic team, blah, blah, blah. And every single thing that she said made me more and more and more nervous. I'm not kidding. I remember I looked at her and then I looked at the floor and then I looked at her and I threw up all over her lap. No way. Oh my God. No, I'm dead serious. Like not good. And we're like, Laura, at this point, we're an hour outside of my race. So I'm like, oh no, this is not going to be good. So I go, like Laura go cleans herself up and I, um, I go and put on my racing suit and I dive in for like my second warm up that I do right before you head to the ready room. My coach pulls me out and he could kind of read my energy and he could tell it was off. So he's like, what is wrong with you? I literally burst into tears. I was like, I'm not ready for this. Like, I don't think I can do this. And he looked at me with a stone cold expression and he goes, all right, well, why don't we find the girl that was ninth this morning? Since you're not ready to swim tonight, we'll just give her your lane. And I was like, oh, no. <laughs> that wasn't exactly the pep talk I was looking for. <laughs> the story gets better. So I swear I'm almost done. So I'm like, oh, my God. Wait, what? So I'm sitting in this chair. I'm like dripping wet. Now we're 20 minutes outside my race. And my coach could tell that like what he said didn't really resonate like he thought it was gonna. It just made me more upset. And so he was like, all right, just hold on one second. Like I'm going to get somebody that's going to give you a little pep talk and he'll hopefully make you feel better. So he grabs this random man on the pool deck. I've never met him, never seen him in my life. And this guy sits down next to me and he doesn't introduce himself. He pulls an Olympic gold medal out of his pocket and he dangles it in front of my face. And he goes, if you do not believe in yourself tonight, you will never win one of these. Whoa. And he put it back in his pocket and he like tapped my leg and he goes, good luck, kid. And walked away. Whoa. Dude, who is this man? Like, what is happening right now? But I will say that was like the epiphany moment for me in my career where I truly understood and grasped and realized if I am not confident and I am not believing in myself before every race, I'm sure I'll still be good just because I'm naturally good at the sport, but I'll never be great. Like I'll never be exceptional. And so that was the light bulb moment. And not even 15 minutes later, I stood up on the blocks, swam that 400 IM and I made my Olympic team, my first Olympic team. Oh, wow. And I love that story because it just goes to show like in one hour, I went from throwing up on my best friend, having (laughs) a massive boo-hoo feel sorry for me. I have an opportunity to make an Olympic team like kind of like fit to making an Olympic team. And all I did was change my mindset. And if there's one thing that I would love for any athlete or whoever it is to take away from this podcast is like, you can do all of the reps in whatever it is that you do. But if you are not actively practicing how to be confident and believing in yourself, it's never going to click. For me, that was such a huge and pivotal moment in my career And I was lucky that it happened when I was only 15. So, you know, I had like an entire career ahead of me when I learned this lesson. But anyways, thank you for allowing me to tell that story. I love it. No, I think it needs to be told. I mean, I actually coach mindset and performance now. I think it's huge. And that's a big part of my story, too, is that like 
our mind is so powerful. And we even say like sports is 90% mental, but like zero people train that way and zero people prepare that way. But, and sometimes it's just being able to flip that switch, but you've got to know yourself and be aware of your, like how you operate and how you think and react in order to change those buttons or flip that switch so fast. And I love that you just figured that out on that spot because you were kind of put to it. You know, you had to in the moment, which is sometimes the best time to learn because you have no other choice. You're either going to do it or you're not in that moment. Who was the man with the gold medal? Oh my God. Thank you for following up. His <laughs> name was Nelson Diebel and he was the 1992 Olympic gold medalist in the hundred breaststroke for the U S wow. And to this day, Laura, I'm not kidding. I still thank Nelson because I truly believe if I had not had that conversation with him that I know I would have been good or great at swimming, but, um, I don't think I would have even touched the success that I had in the sport. It's cool to think I'm a big fan of playing the domino game where it's like, well, if this, didn't happen, then this wouldn't have happened. And if that didn't happen, then this wouldn't have happened. So it's like cool to trace a lot of things back to one pivotal conversation. Like one person made that difference. And I think we all have moments like that and people like that. Nelson has just become like a father figure, a friend, like a mentor, all of these beautiful things just because of that one simple 10 second conversation. And you didn't even know him at the time. No, I was like, who's this dude? And I'm sure you were this person because it's just your personality and your team captain, you know, and your third Olympic games and all that stuff. So I know you are being that kind of mentor for others too, but I had something similar happen. I had been on a couple of international meets, but I was kind of new to the scene and I just missed out on making Olympic trials when I was 18 in 1996. I'd only been diving like three years and I was just devastated. And I was on the pool deck just... I don't know if I was crying or just zoned out. Like I was just devastated. And I remember Mark Lindsay, he was the 1992 Olympic gold medalist. And he walked over because he knew me a little bit. And he said, you know what? This sucks, but you got to let this light a fire that's going to burn hard and be bright for the next four years. And I never let that go because this was an Olympic champion telling me that this was going to help me and fuel me for something greater. You know what I mean? So there's power in that. And we don't always think that we're the person that's going to make a difference or what we say is going to make a difference, but it really can. And it's not always like in the moments we realize it's going to. So I love that he just happened to have his gold medal on him, which is so random. Yeah. I was also like, why do you have this? But like, I guess it's cool. Just because he could, he could just whip it out of his pocket. That's just the best. I know. (laughs) I don't know if you just carry your Olympic gold around, Laura, but. Not often, but when I'm at events, I do stick it in my back pocket. So I have whipped it out, but it's not, I don't, I mean, yeah. That's just awesome. So yeah, it was great. Oh, beautiful. So, okay. You make the Olympic team at 15. Did you make it in backstroke two that year? Yep. So I made it in two events, which was awesome. And then what was the Olympics like? Was it everything you thought it would be? Was it horrible? Was it awesome? Like, (laughs) tell us all the details. I will say, and I think every Olympic rookie says this, it is not everything you think it will be. Oh, really? And you may agree with me. And if you don't, I would love to hear your point of view, but like, I had this rosy colored view of the Olympics because all I had exposure to is what I saw on TV and all of the teams that I had been on leading up to the Olympics with USA swimming, we are pampered to the max. We only stay in five-star hotels. We have private cars driving us to and from the venues to the hotel. Like, okay, I'll just let you know right now, diving and swimming are very different in this respect. And honestly, maybe you were more prepared for the Olympics <laughs> than I was. So we had like the best meals at our hotels, like massage therapists, literally at our becking call. And so I get to the Olympics 
and we get to our dorm and there's one sheet on the bed and the bed is like a twin. (laughs) I don't know if you had this in your dorms in Beijing, Laura, but our shower drains wouldn't drain. And the shower was above the toilet. Like it was just, oh my God, I got there and I was like, wait, I'm not at the Shangri-La. Like, what is this? (laughs) Like, is this really how did somebody punk me? Like, and I feel like such a brat saying that, but it was like, I just had this picture of the dorms in the village being like a plush five-star accommodation and vans shuttling me from the <laughs> the dorms to the pool. And it's like, nope, not waiting 30 minutes for the bus. <laughs> right. It's a public bus system and you better hope it's on time. Like right. actually leave an hour before you uh-huh. think you need to. So it was like, in that sense, totally different from what I expected. But I think... The dining hall, like you said earlier, is the place to be. Oh, my goodness. Like the amount of people that you see there because everybody's got to eat, you know, mm-hmm. and it's open 24 seven. Tw- so you could just any time of the day or night, you could just wander in there and stare at people. You're going to just run into like the biggest names in all sports. And I think that was just the coolest thing for me, especially as a 15 year old. I did have that imposter syndrome of like, okay, one of these things doesn't belong. And it's definitely me. Like, I don't have a license. Like, (laughs) what am I doing here? There's LeBron James. I'm on a team with Michael Phelps. Like, I mean, it was so not what I expected in like beautiful ways. You know, I think everybody, at least in swimming, because of the way that we're brought up through the sport and how lucky we are to have USA Swimming pamper us like that and really treat us like we're like elite, almost like NBA, NFL type athletes. We get to the Olympics and it's like, oh, we don't even get a pillow here. Oh, okay. That's so funny to me because that we never got one. I mean, we've been to some really interesting hotels. I'll just put it that way. <laughs> my travels, some scary, really scary ones. But yeah, it's just not my same. But in Sydney, it was really funny. That was my first Olympics. And we got, we had a whole house. It was different from like the dorms we've had in, in other oh. Olympics. It was like this house. But when we got there, there were only a couple of rooms and we had like four girls and three guys on the team. And so we were like, okay, there's not that many rooms. Like, how are we going to do this? Well, there was a trailer out back. And so the girls had to sleep in the trailer. So we were dubbed trailer trash the whole time we were there. We had one shower in the middle. And anytime somebody took a shower in it, it spilled out into the rooms, like onto the floors. So we tried to shower, do all our showering at the pool. (laughs) So it's like, yeah, we were trailer trash. So same thing in Beijing. We spent a lot of time at the dining hall and just outside in the fields at that. (laughs) You're like, I don't even want to be in our house. But that's the thing. Like, I'm sure people think like from the outside looking in, like, oh, the village must be so nice. And like, it's the Olympic Games. So they obviously must have the best of the best. And it's like, I mean, there's some cool things in it, you know, and I mean, but there's 10,000 athletes being housed in this village. So, you know, they've got to make it accommodating, but it's, yeah, there's always fun. But everyone was so different that I went to, probably yours too. I'm I'm assuming they were all just so different, which makes it special too, for better or for worse, but it gives you some different memories. (laughs) No, oh, absolutely. You're not, you're not wrong at all. Now, how did you feel like you competed in Beijing? Because that was also the Olympics where Michael Phelps was going for his eight gold medals. And that was like the big media thing. Like, I I mean, I was there and I, I remember seeing like four of his races just from like the pool side, like from the diving side we were watching. And did that like, was that distracting to you? Did you like even kind of have a clue what was going on? Like, were you just hyper-focused on your stuff? Like, where was your brain and your heart and all that stuff? I think we were all tuned into Michael, even just a little bit, just because it was so 
unbelievable. I mean, for example, we flew private from our training camp in Singapore to Beijing simply because of Michael. Like he's that high profile. And I will never forget, you know, we get off the plane and we kind of walk down the ramp or the stairs and we go straight into these cars. They have like fully tinted windows and they're paparazzi everywhere. And I think I had just been like right next to Michael during this whole time for some reason. And remembering how I thinking like this is actually really difficult. Like, I don't think I would ever want this, you know, like it was every move that he made, he was under a microscope. And so I think just by the nature of what he was attempting to do and, and the coverage of the media, it was hard to tune that out, but it wasn't to anybody's detriment. I was fully invested in Michael and his, his entire performance in Beijing. But, you know, for me, it was first Olympics. So first of any type of competition, you never really know what to expect in terms of energy and the vibes and the nerves and all that stuff. So it was a lot of me figuring out the Olympics itself and how I responded to such a high pressure meet. And I did well, you know, I would place fourth in the foreign I am just off the podium and fifth in the Turner backstroke. So I finaled in both of my events, went best times in both of my events. So like it was a great indicator for me where I left being like, I'm still hungry. Like I wanted some hardware to come home with. Like I wanted a medal didn't get it. Were you disappointed at all? Or were you like, okay with that? I was like slightly disappointed because it's so close. Oh my God. Especially the fourth place one. It's like, there's no worse place to get, you know? Like, so I think for me, I was also okay with it though, because I was 15. I had that perspective at such a young age of knowing that that was just the beginning for me. And you know what? I'll do better next time. And so it left me kind of like, was it Mark Lindsay? Was that his name? Yeah. That spoke to you. And he was like, let this create a fire underneath you and let it go for the next four years. And so for me, it was like, I'm satisfied personally because I went best times, but I want more. I want medals. I want hardware. And so that was kind of one of the things that fueled me throughout the next four years heading into London 2012. But, you know, I walked away from Beijing so happy to have just been there and witness all of the things that I witnessed, you know, they sent me home as soon as swimming was over just because I was so young. But to be able to say that I watched Michael Phelps win eight gold medals like live and call him now a friend, it's really cool. And he's just a human. But at that point, he was still Superman to me. You know, I was like, oh my God, I'm on the same bus as Michael Phelps. Like, what? Like, it was just really cool. Really cool. So what was that next quad like for you? Because you're going from 15 to 19. There's a lot of changes that happen. Like, were you prepping for school too? Did you go to school? Did you wait? Like, how did you kind of go after that next four years? Yeah. So the next quad was pretty much like a two and two split quad for me. I was two years left in uh, the high school, that I, like just public high school. And then I ended up signing with the University of Florida and went there on a full scholarship and swam. And I had two years. It was kind of perfect because in the swimming world, you don't really ever leave your coach except for those big transitions like high school to college and then maybe college to pro. I was like, perfect. I'm going to have two years with the same coach at Florida under my belt before the Olympics. It's kind of perfect. He'll know how to taper me. I'll know how I am as an athlete with him. And in 2011, 
So after my first year at Florida, I won the world championships in the 400 IM. That was like my first big taper with Coach Troy. And that was like so relieving in a way because it was like, yep, I made the right decision. He knows how to taper me. I'm ready for next summer. We've done this once. We're going to do it again. And the training group that we had at Florida was unbelievable. At the U.S. Olympic trials that next summer in 2012, the first three people named to the Olympic team were Florida Gators. Whoa. Three of my teammates. Yeah. It was me, Peter Vanderkay, Ryan Lochte, and then Connor Dwyer ended up making it that night, but he was a second place. So he didn't get added until day two. So it was like pretty much four of us on the first night made the Olympic team. And we were on fire, like unstoppable. It was the time to be a Florida Gator. It was so much fun. Like all of us were swimming well. And then heading to London, it was just, the team was great. Like the Olympic team was great. We just had such a good rapport amongst all of us. Everybody knew each other. It was just good vibes. Heading to London, so a bit more familiarity than Beijing, you know, like we spoke the language and it was a little bit easier to get around. Just simple things like that. Well, and it's your second one, too. So you kind of know a little bit more going in, right? Right. I had been there before. Exactly. So I think in terms of if you ask me what my favorite games were, I would always say London just because it was like one of those magical times in my life that I wish I could like press a button and go back to just for a minute. It's funny, Ryan was your teammate. Ryan Lochte was your teammate there too because he was getting a lot of press. I was working with NBC at that time doing like pieces. We were covering the moms of the athletes and so we were following Ryan's mom around. So it was really kind of funny. Like I was on that perspective of it because I was around the pool the whole time and he was wearing that grill. And I remember like he kept putting that grill in on the awards stand. We kept asking his mom and she just like would put her hand over her eyes, just shake her head. (laughs) (laughs) But that's Ryan. Like to this day, he is himself. And I think like we can all channel a little bit of that in our lives. But no, it was like so fantastic, like being on an Olympic team with also like your teammates from home, like at Florida, like you just have this comfortable feeling always like you always have somebody to lean on. And so night one for me was I got a silver in the 400 IM, which, you know, night one. Wow. Night one. And it's kind of like. Uh, you always want it to be gold, but <laughs> I mean, first Olympic medal is always special, no matter what color it is. And so for me to be able to stand on the podium and win, I think it was the first female Olympic medal of swimming. So it was cool. Like for me to be the first girl to stand on the podium for the U S and go a best time. And again, that's like one of the things in swimming is it's so fulfilling when you go a best time because you put in so much work to drop like a 10th of a second in a four minute race. So to have that happen, win an Olympic medal that night, Ryan won Olympic gold, PVK, our other teammate and Connor went third and fourth. So like we're on fire, we're having a good meet. And then a few days later, I win another Olympic medal. I got a bronze in the Turner backstroke. It was just like, like a picture perfect meet. Like I medaled in both of my events. I went best times in both of my events. Like it was just, like I said, a magical time and everybody was swimming well. And I was at the age in London where I could actually stay after, you know, in Beijing, they sent me home because I was super young, but, um, we had a group of us and we all stayed in London and went to some of the track events and like got to actually see some of the other sports and enjoyed London. So it was just like a really, really fun time. Like my dad, my mom and my brother came out and my mom actually went to school and 
England for college for two years. So like all of her friends were there. It was just this whole affair. It was awesome. So how do you top that? I mean, how did you feel after that Olympics? Like, were you like, I'm fulfilled, I'm done? Or, I mean, you still had two years of college left, right? So I guess you were just going to keep going. Like, where was your brain after that? Because I get asked that a lot. Like, why did you keep going after you won? You won. Like, isn't that it? Like, don't. why do you want to keep going? You know, so where was your brain after that magical? I mean, because does it get any better than that, right? Like, that was epic. <laughs> no, exactly. And I think my brain was like, well, I didn't win. You know, I don't have a gold medal yet. So I do want to keep going. That's like, of course, every Olympic athlete's dream, I think, is if you're really going for it, you want that gold. So for me, I had two more years of college swimming, which I was, of course, going to do because I was also getting a degree. So I was going to finish that. And then, to be honest, there was never a question in my mind. It was just like, yeah, I'm going to swim until I can. And how cool would it be to swim pro? So after I graduated University of Florida in 2014, I immediately signed with Speedo signed a four-year deal with them. That was just like it, you know, it was pretty seamless. I, I never questioned it. It was just like, yeah, of course, this is what I'm doing. So it was, it was easy. And I was always hungry for more. And I did get to the point where in terms of personal improvement, I did not get faster from 2014 until I retired in 2017. I was the same exact time. And that ended up being part of the reason why I kind of walked away or retired, whatever you want to call it. I made the 2016 Olympic team, ended up being team captain, which was so fulfilling. Special honor. Yeah. Oh my God. And that was my role. You know, I only made the 400 IM or I don't want to say only I made the 400 IM and that was day one. And I ended up placing, I think fifth. So like no gold, no medal, just off the podium again. But then I was able to dedicate that entire eight day meet to being a captain and pretty much helping out wherever I could to be able to help some of the rookies. Like I remember Kathleen Baker was her first Olympic team. She was just a teenager, maybe 17. She was having a time before her Hunter backstroke final, super nervous, just like I had been many times before. And it was cute because these kids felt comfortable leaning on me. And she asked me to go to the locker room with her, like play music, kind of like distract her, be silly, like be myself, help her put on her suit and walk her to the ready room. Right after I did that, she swam her hunter backstroke and won a silver medal. It was cool for me to be able to do that and help in the success of others. And I think that's where I do my best type of leadership is just serving others. And selfishly, to be honest, let's call it how it is. It makes you feel good too. So it made me feel good to know that I could help Kathleen and know that she was going to be at least in the best position possible to have some success. So anyways, I came home from Rio super disappointed and frustrated with the sport. And I walked away from the sport, took a break. I didn't quit, but I took a very extended break for eight months and I did not touch the water. And it wasn't until I got an email from Speedo in May of 2017 saying, Hey, Elizabeth, we love that you're enjoying your break. <laughs> we are paying you <laughs> to swim. <laughs> you should probably think about doing that again soon. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, that's fair. So long story short, they ended the email saying that um, I needed to be at world championship trials which were in the end of June. I received this email early May 
And I was like, oh, gosh. Oh, exactly. Oh, God. <laughs> like when I tell you, Laura, I did not touch the water. Like if I was getting in the water, it was to like go surfing or wakeboarding or something like there was no cap and goggles involved. Pure fun. So I was definitely not in shape. I'll say that. And I was like, oh, wow, great. So in eight weeks, I'm expected to be at World Championship Trials and compete for a spot on the World Championship team against people that have been training all year. You know, like those people that maybe had just missed the 2016 Olympic team. They had that fire. They were training hard. Oh, I was sleeping in, going out late, like really not being an athlete. And so I ended up going out to Colorado Springs and doing an extended training trip with Bob Bowman. And at the time, the ASU kids, I got my butt like it was demoralizing, but it was also beautiful because every practice I kept showing up and I kept getting just a little bit better every practice. And so I went to world championship trials thinking, okay, you know what? This is probably going to be the last meet of my career. I'm going to swim one event. It's going to be the 400 I am. And then I'm going to call it a day. You know, I love the sport. I'm back in shape. I'm enjoying it. What better way to end my career? And so I swim prelims of this 400 I am and I make it back to finals. I make it back top eight. And I'm like, at this point, all right, great. You know, Speedo, look at me. I'm here. I made the final. Like, get that paycheck ready. <laughs> so I go into finals. And at this point, I've told my coach at Florida and my club coach from high school that this will be my last race because I'm fully not expecting to make the world championship team. They take top two, just like the Olympics. And I was like, there's no way I'm going to be tonight. I'm just stoked to be in the final. And so we're all kind of living this final session as like, it's the last time I'm going to warm up. It's the last time I'm going to put on my racing suit. You know, it's the last of everything. So I'm like taking it in and I'm very in the present and I'm really loving it. You know, when they paraded us out for finals, it was like in lane two, Elizabeth Beisel, and I raised my arm. And I remember looking out on the pool and being like, wow, this is the last time that I'm going to stand behind the blocks as an elite athlete. And what a, it's almost like your entire career flashes before your eyes. And you're like, wow, like I was pretty good, you know, like I did some cool stuff and I think I'm ready. And so I told myself, I was like, you know what, tonight, your only job, just race just go for it. Like it literally does not matter your time, what place you get, just give it your all. Like that's what little seven-year-old Elizabeth would want, you know, like end your career in a proud and dignifying way. And so that entire 400 IM was so painful, probably because I still wasn't in like the best shape, <laughs> but at the 300, I was third and at first and second place, out of a 400. So we had a quarter of the race left to go. And first and second were like literally so far ahead that it was impossible for me to ever catch them. So I turn at this 300 and I'm like, all right, well, I'm not making the world's team, but I turn at this 300 dead even with the girl next to me. And the girl next to me happens to be a little 15 year old. And I'm like, absolutely not. Like <laughs> you will have your time, but today is not your day, sweetie. And so I was like, no way you're going to beat me as a 23 year old. Because I'm like, I used to be that 15 year old. I hate that 15 year old. I'm like, no, no. So I swear me and this little girl, her name's Brooke 40. She ended up swimming at Stanford, making the 2021 Olympic team, like incredible career. 
She's in the Peace Corps now, like one of the best people you'll ever meet. But it's Brooke and I, neck and neck, stroke for stroke, this entire last 100. And I remember we get to the wall and I think I outtouched Brooke by like a few hundredths of a second, like not even a blink of an eye. And I look up, I see the number three next to my name. And um, you would have thought I broke the world record. I was so excited. I was like, <laughs> oh my God. And so it gets better. I'm like congratulating the two girls that got first and second because they're on their way to Budapest for world championships. And I'm just like genuinely excited for them. And I look back up at the scoreboard and there are the letters DQ next to the girl that ended up getting second. Oh, and I was like, oh, no. Like, <laughs> Oh, man. So like two things are going through my mind. I'm like, and I'm talking to the girl that got second when I see this on the scoreboard. And I'm like, Ella. I'm like, oh my God, I'm going to have to tell her that she got DQ'd. I'm like, Ella, um, look at the scoreboard. And she's like, I know I got second. And I'm like, no, like, just, just look at it. Just look at it. Um, and she sees the DQ and like, I, I mean, I just physically got chills. Like that is not something that you ever want to happen at a qualification meet. And so I am like processing a lot of things at once because now I'm also like, oh, if this DQ stays, I am now second place. And here I was thinking I was going to, you know, have this beautiful walk out into the sunset and I'm done and blah, blah, blah. And now I'm like, oh God, like now I'm not ready to go to worlds. But so what ended up happening was the DQ stood and I ended up getting second and going on to world championships that summer. Oh man. I will say it was the most incredible world championships. I ended up getting fifth which is ironically the same place I got at the Olympics the year before. But this fifth was so fulfilling because it was just like, I knew I wasn't going to win, but I was so happy. And for so many athletes, like I would say the majority of athletes don't walk away from their sport loving it. Sometimes they end on terms that aren't their own. And I'm just so fortunate to have had that opportunity to end my sport at the highest meet in a final next to the world record holder, like all these amazing things. And, and at the end of the day, just like truly be happy. I also love that story too, because I'm like, listen, you guys, like you only control your lane and what you do that night. I was third. Like there was no team that I was making. Like all I was doing was racing the girl next to me. And had I not done that, Brooke would have gone to worlds, not me. And so it's just like, you literally never know what's going to happen and so for me to say that I was able to retire my career at world championships versus trials, so huge and amazing. Way more satisfying. Yeah. Anyway, is that was a cut to now. I don't swim anymore. Uh, not competitively. <laughs> that was the end of my competitive swimming career. And it was it was beautiful. I love that it was a beautiful ending that because you're you're right. Not a lot of people get that like sweet last moment. And I I love that for you. But now you do a lot of like commentating and media, like you're on the other side now. So what is it like watching swimming and like commentating on swimming from this new perspective? Oh, it's amazing. It's the best way to stay in the sport, too, because you still are able to keep that rapport amongst the athletes. Like they see you, they know you, they're familiar with you. My favorite thing is the post-race interviews because I get to be on deck with them and, and talk to them. But I'm sure it's with you, like whenever you do stuff with NBC, like even if it's not diving, it's just so nice to be around a pool and to be around athletes and sports. And 
I've been super fortunate to be able to do it. And I was in Tokyo two summers ago for the Olympics and plan if everything goes well, plan on being in Paris next summer. It's just like, my gosh, I love swimming so much. And how lucky am I to be able to do something that I enjoy while staying in the sport that I love so much? It was a seamless transition for me into like kind of the media commentating world. And kind of like you, Laura, I think we're both kind of outward, maybe extroverts and like easy to talk to. And I just like, I enjoy talking to people. And so for me, it's like, oh yeah, like let's sit down and do an interview and I can like relate to you, you know, cause I've been there. So I think that's like to at least our advantage. Yeah, for sure. I am actually not the outgoing one. I tend to be very quiet in a group of people, but one-on-one with people, I love talking. I do love interviewing athletes and getting to talk to them about their experience. I mean, that's why I love doing this show. Like, I just think everybody has such a cool story and perspective and that we can all learn from each other. And so I love that. Well, you have kind of gotten back into swimming a little bit. Tell us about block cancer. Oh, yes. Okay. So like, Once a swimmer, always a swimmer. Like, I'm never going to leave the sport. I'm never going to stop doing it. So I guess to start, my dad got diagnosed with pancreatic cancer in December of 2020. And so it was stage four. And for those of you that are familiar with the cancer oncology world, stage four anything, no bueno, but especially pancreatic. It's kind of an expedited trip to wherever the next place is that we go. I was kind of grappling with that. And wanting, I mean, I was reading all the books, you know, like cancer had never touched my family before this. So I was very green in terms of like, what do I do as a loved one trying to support somebody with cancer? Like, I don't know, like, do we talk about it? Do we not? And so from all like the books and the research and all that stuff that I was doing, it was like, try to give your loved one something to look forward to a trip or like an event, whatever. And I was like, well, the Olympics are this summer, but hell no, am I going to be able to train in six months to get into shape to swim at the Olympics? I'm like, no, okay, so that's off the table. And I knew like my swimming platform was going to be what I used to do something. And there's an island off the coast of Rhode Island, like the mainland Rhode Island. It's called Block Island. And it's basically like the Nantucket and the Martha's Vineyard of Rhode Island. It's 12 and a half miles away. And it was like a crisp, I'll never forget this. It was a crisp January day and it was clear. My dad was having a good day and he couldn't really do much because you're so lethargic when you're receiving treatments. He was undergoing chemotherapy and um, he was like, Elizabeth, like, let's go for a drive. And I was like, awesome. Let's go to our favorite spot down at the point. Great visibility. You can kind of see Block Island from there. It's right on the beach. And so we were sitting in the car just like kind of in silence And you could see Block Island over the horizon. And he's like, do you think you could swim there? And I immediately looked at him. I was like, absolutely not. Like, why would I want to do that? That sounds horrible. Like, (laughs) I was like, okay, dad. And he's like, yeah, you know, I think you could. And it was just like a funny conversation, whatever. I thought nothing of it. As I went to bed that night, I like revisited the conversation. I was like, huh, could I? So I was like, all right, just go to bed, sleep on it, whatever. So I go to bed, wake up the next morning, and it's like the first thing I think about. And so I'm like, all right, I'm going to see if this has ever been done before and how far it is. Like, what's it going to take? And so two men had done it before, but back in the early 2000s. So up to 20 years before. No one had touched it since. And I was like, oh, no, <laughs> I'm going to do this. Like, I, I know myself. I ended up reaching out to Swim Across America, who is an incredible nonprofit 
that hosts swims across the country and all of the dollars raised from each swim goes to a local beneficiary. And so I had, even before dad, for uh, 10 years, I had been doing these swims with Swim Across America just because it's a great cause. All the money goes to a local hospital. And even though it hadn't touched my immediate family, I had lost people to cancer just throughout my web of life. I reached out to them and I was like, listen, I know this is crazy, but here's my dad's situation. And I think I want to swim to Block Island. Within 20 minutes, I had an email back from their executive director and his name's Rob. And Rob was like, literally whatever you need, we will make this happen. And so just like utter chills and they handled everything. It's not like running a road race, you know, like, all right, we're just going to like put a couple cones up, have some safety patrol and some snacks along the way. We're cleaned up in an hour. You know, like we had to notify the Coast Guard. We had to be working with a safety crew, an EMT. We had to have a Navy SEAL on board. We had to have a shark expert on board. Like we had to have two kayakers on either side of me. Like we had to have somebody from the Marathon Swimming Federation on board. There were so many logistics that went into the swim that I could not possibly do while being my dad's caretaker. Like, and that was the best part. They were like, you need to focus on bringing your dad to his appointments and taking care of your dad and training because this is a 12 and a half mile swim, 20 kilometers. We're going to take care of everything else. We'll just tell you when to show up. And so it was like the most incredible thing. And sadly, my dad ended up passing away before I did the swim. So I never got to see it, but he knows that I did it. I fully believe in wherever people end up going after they're here on this physical world, like they have some type of knowledge as to what's happening here. And he knew you were planning it, right? Oh, yeah. He was a part of the whole planning process. And to be honest, I think that was like the most beautiful thing about it was, you know, when we're sitting there and his two plus hour long chemo appointments, we're talking about the training I did that day or like how much money have we raised? Because we were selling merch and accepting donations. And so our modest goal at first was, all right, we'll try to raise $5,000. I think we literally did that in like the first two days. And then it just went up in increments. It went to 10 to 25 to 50 to a hundred. And we ended up raising over $600,000. Wow. Yeah. And it all went to in-lab cancer research. This was not renaming a hospital wing. This was like truly life-saving research. And so since I did the swim, I've been working on rebranding, reintroducing block cancer. And I'm actually thinking about next week kind of launching it again. And it's going to be merchandise and it will operate as a for-profit business. Unfortunately, I just don't have the bandwidth right now to run a nonprofit. So what I'll do is donate 90% of the net profits to Swim Across America. And I love that because they allow me to be a part of the vetting process as to like, all right, which researcher accepts this grant or earns this grant. So I'm like a part of the entire process. I know where the dollars are going. So it's going to be merch, like hoodies, t-shirts, hats, but also chemo scarves, chemo caps, port shirts, like cancer treatment baskets, like stuff that puts the cancer patient first, but doing it in a way that's like trendy, I guess. Like it's a shirt that you're going to want to wear instead of like your classic 5K run for cancer t-shirt that you're like, eh, I'll probably never wear this again. <laughs> it's like cool designed merch made from artists that live in Rhode Island that I have connections to. And so 90% net will go towards all of that research. And then the other 10% will go to the artists operating costs, blah, 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 just to like keep the business running kind of thing. I've literally been putting in so much time and effort into it 
and it's a passion project. So it never feels like work. So I truly love it. I'm so excited to launch hopefully before August this summer. So people can look out for that. But yeah, super stoked because it's more than just a brand, you know, it's more than just raising money. Like this is a way that I kind of keep my dad alive and stay connected to him. And it's really beautiful to see the difference that we've made with block cancer within the cancer community. It's so awesome. And you gave him such a gift in the end too, something to focus on instead of what he was going through. He got to focus on you, who he loves, his daughter and what you were doing and this thing that he came up with the idea essentially, you know, and you took it to this whole new level. Like, no, he literally did. I was like, it's so cool. I love that. Yeah. During the swim, I was like, dad, dad, this sucks. But then you also <laughs> had the mindset of like, okay, like, why am I doing this? I would actually prefer to swim to Block Island a million times than ever receive a cancer diagnosis. So it's like, perspective is everything. But trust me, there were a few times during the swim where I was like, dad, this is so hard. <laughs> that's so funny. <laughs> I know, <laughs> but it was great. Oh, that's so cool. I love it. Well, tell us about your book too, Silver Lining. Did that just come out? That's actually been out since 2020. It had a very unfortunate release date. It was basically released like two weeks before COVID was named a pandemic and the world shut down. So like, I had a whole book tour scheduled, but it got canceled and I kind of lost steam with it. Like, you know, like you get all excited about a project and then time goes by and you're like, well, I'm not going to go on a book tour, but the book is great. I mean, it's a super easy read. It's like 200 pages. And I co-wrote it with a woman named Beth Fair. It's basically walks you through my swimming career. And one of the things that I really wanted to do with the book was make sure that it left you feeling really good and inspired, but I also covered the lows as much as I covered the highs because I don't care who you are, what you've done in your life. Your life is a constant roller coaster. And I didn't want the book to be all rainbows and butterflies. It was not a highlight real book. It was like, yeah, here are the highlights, but also here are the lowlights. Here's when I wanted to quit. Here's when I got injured. Here's when this happened. And I wanted it to be relatable because... I think often, and maybe you feel like this too, Laura, like you'll do a speaking engagement or whatever, an appearance. And you're like, okay, I know I'm here because in your case, an Olympic gold medalist, in my case, just Olympic medalist. But it's like, how do I resonate with these people? I can't just get up here and talk about like winning an Olympic medal because, oh yeah, that's cool. But like, how do I kind of like make them understand that I am also just a normal person? And so I wanted the book kind of a mirror of that. Like, yeah, I know like I've accomplished pretty incredible things, but at the end of the day, I have all the tools that you have. It's just how are you using them? Exactly. And so that was kind of what the book kind of hones in on. And it's gotten great reviews. People seem to love it. So if you're interested, by all means. Where do we buy it? Where do we check it out? It's called Silver Lining and you can get it on Amazon. Or if you want a personalized copy, like I'll sign it and write you a little note and write your name, whatever it is. It makes a great gift too. Like they kind of go crazy in the holidays. You can just go to my website. It's super easy. ElizabethBeisel.com. You can just order it from there. Great for any athlete, not just a swimmer. I love it. One, I think sports is such a great analogy for life, right? Like the things we learn, the lessons we learn in sport are just such a black and white way to put them into our very gray world, right? To kind of use those same skills and tools but in this kind of hot mess of life outside the pool. <laughs> it is certainly a hot mess. I'm learning that. 
Oh my gosh. So elizabethbeisel.com. I'm going to say it right, but you spell it B-E-I-S-E-L, guys, just so you know. I know. It's the Germans. I blame them. Oh, I'm so sorry. I've been saying it wrong for like years. So yeah, my bad. I still love you. I don't care. I I love you too, Laura. (laughs) You're amazing. Hopefully you'll be in Paris. We'll get to see you like commentating and everything there, but we will keep cheering you on in everything that you do. You are so passionate. You're such a great cheerleader of others. You are just awesome inside and out. So thank you, Elizabeth, so much for sharing your time with us and your story. And thank you for giving me this platform and just having and hosting an amazing podcast. And to be honest, for me to meet like a low-key childhood hero (laughs) and be on our podcast, I'm kind of feeling a little fangirly right now, but... You're cracking me up. Oh my gosh. I'll spare you. <laughs> I don't even know we've ever like hung out. Like we've passed in hallways and things, but we've never even like yeah. hung out before. We should change that. I agree. I mean, I think this all worked. I think this was a great fun hour. Hopefully people listening enjoyed themselves too. And it's just like, it's only the beginning for us, Laura. <laughs> only the beginning. I love it. Thank you so much for tuning in today. And please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review our show. This allows us to keep bringing on amazing guests, and it also helps other athletes to find this show. Make sure to check out the show notes to follow us on social media and learn more about our awesome guest. To hear all of our amazing episodes, head on over to thepursuitofgold.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. The Pursuit of Gold is proud to be a Podigy production. That's all for now. Make sure to tune back in next week.